as we are asking. Uh, so if you have family and friends who would like to listen, um, speak to John. Uh, I have missed you. Thank you for, for the wonderful Christmas cards. You were very sweet. Uh, I've missed you for the last few weeks and, and excited to jump in um, to what is called the Crown of Pauline Theology, his epistle to the Romans. This is where it all kind of comes together. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, for those of you listening at home, welcome. We just do some quick introductions here. So we'll, we'll actually start with a priest. We'll start to my left. Just identify yourself by name and what parish you attend. Paul Peter, priest of St. Mary. Ibrahim Wirtz, St. Catherine's Greek Orthodox Church. Anthelis Lovos, St. Catherine. Deborah Chabou, St. Mary's. Ibrahim Chabou, St. Mary. Scott Smith and whatever he said. Okay. <laughs> no, it's whatever your wife said. Nadine Smith, St. Mary's. Debbie Abdo, St. Mark. Tony Mayer, St. Mary. Joan Schwery, St. Mary. Judy Chalup, St. Mary. Mark Samra, St. Mary. John Pope, St. Mary. Uh, Jim Gavrilis, and I was St. Ignatius. Debbie, it is so good to see you. I've not seen you in years. So. Yeah, in a while. Again, great to see everybody. We're going to jump in. This, you know, I don't do a lot of pleasantries. I've got a couple of thoughts by way of introduction tonight before we get into verse by verse. Uh, the first, I have to give an observation. This is a personal observation, which I don't usually make, but it's important tonight. Um, and getting ready for the study, I have all these notes which I'm not going to use because I, I just I'm going somewhere else. Um, and getting ready for the study, one of the things I do like to do is bring forward the patristic commentaries. And, and thank God we do have the writings of St. John Chrysostom. You know, and there is a reason why he was given the name the Golden Mouth. When you listen to, his, to the sermons of St. John, you understand. And as just by way of very brief introduction for those of you who you know Chrysostom from the liturgy, but the man himself who became Archbishop of Constantinople, there's a reason why he gave such magnificent sermons. Um, in his younger days, he kind of locked himself in a cave with nothing but the Bible. And he would tie himself to a pillar lest he sleep too long. So he would doze for a few minutes. Then, you know, he'd, he'd jerk himself awake and he'd go back to reading the Bible. Well, after doing this for years, you know, as um, I believe it was St. Ambrose of Milan and his counsel to young priest said, one who cannot be silent must never speak for he would have nothing to say. Um, after years of this intense Bible study and, and the work of the Holy Spirit, Chrysostom had something to say. And I mean, his sermons, you, you could literally get up on a Sunday morning today and read one of Chrysostom's sermons and, and your congregation would go, wow, that was unbelievable. How did you know us so well? And, and you're talking about somebody who was basically a monastic from the fourth century. Um, the wonderful news for us is that all of these have been translated into English. Chrysostom has verse by verse exegesis on almost the entire New Testament, pretty much most of the Old Testament. And, and thankfully um, they were in Greek, of course, the original, uh, a series called Patrologia Greca, where you had the Greek and the Latin text kind of side by side. And then 50, 60 years ago, a series came out, uh, the Nicene, Post-Nicene, and Anti-Nicene Fathers, and they translated all these. Granted, it's King James English. Um, most of the translations are you know, not super great, but they're readable. And so my point, I'm, I'm, I am actually leading up to a point here, uh, Chrysostom is accessible to us in the English language. So in getting ready for this study over the last couple of weeks, I thought, you know, I would love to get Chrysostom's commentaries on Romans. What do we do today? We Google, we go to Amazon. Before I get to my punchline, <laughs> I believe Prince Harry has a book out right now. Mm -hmm. um, I know one library has 35 copies and there are 1,100 people waiting for that book. Uh, it, it is it's obviously the bestseller. 
my son, who is in the Air Force, uh, his reaction was, didn't we fight a revolution 200 years ago so we don't have to care about this stuff? Yeah. Um, what is that book retailing for? Does anyone know? It's like 35 or $40. The Complete Works of St. John Chrysostom on Amazon.com. Every sermon he ever gave, his commentary on virtually the entire Bible, it is 4,600 pages. $2.99. I am not making this up. A week ago, I got an Amazon, I got a barnesandnoble.com. It's, it's, it's in my nook, saved to the cloud because it would, uh, the, the commentary of Christendom would completely eat up the, the storage of my entire nook. 4,000 pages of commentary of perhaps the greatest preacher in Christian history, $2.99. There's something terribly wrong with our world. Okay, so uh, that's my observation today on, on where we are. Just welcome, introduce yourself to, to our guests. And, there we go. And Alan. All right. So, anyway, that's my observation. Um, you can go spend $35 and read all the gossip about the kings and queens of England, or you can spend $2.99 and get every sermon that St. John Chrysostom ever preached. So, um, you spend your money where you want to, I'll spend mine where I want to. Uh, now, let's, let's get to, to the Romans itself. When we dig into the text, those of you who have been with us in the past, I, I've touched on this, and this is a critically important point that I want to make by way of introduction. Paul has a very specific methodology in his epistles. He starts with theology, and then he goes to ethics and morality. And I'm going to say that again. He starts with theology, and then he goes to ethics and morality. And this collides with the modern world. Um, illustration, it may be somewhat ridiculous, but it makes sense to me. I'm a single man. Over the last few years, I'd be introduced to wonderful women. Oh, you should meet this woman. And we'd go out, and they would know a little bit of my background, and I would hear, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. <laughs> And I would always say, check, please. Um, I, Daniel Tosh, the comedian, has got the best answer to that. When a woman says, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, he says, I'm not honest, but I'm interested. Um, I, I have no idea what that means. I, have, I, I just can't, I cannot wrap my head around this idea that, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. The, the, these definitions that we use today of what it means to be spiritual, it very often, it just means I'm nice. I mean, I don't, I don't run over squirrels on the highway or I, you know, I recycle or something like this. Um, you cannot understand ethic and morality without a theology because ultimately all ethics and morals are grounded in the person of God. We are most good when we are godlike. Remember the dialogue of Jesus with the young lawyer. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of life? What was Jesus' response to him? Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Goodness and godness are, are, are intimately linked. Um, I think we get ourselves into trouble when we try to have an ethical system or a moral system 
without a theological system. And I believe that's one of the reasons why culturally today we're in such a mess. I mean, this idea, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Okay, define spirituality for me. What does that mean? Well, you need to be good. Okay, define good. What does good mean? If there's no universal standard of goodness, how can you and I have any conversation of what it means to be a moral person? Uh, Pandali and I are going to talk, well, we each, it's, it's important to be good. He thinks it's good to be nice to orphans, you know, widows, and the homeless. And I think it's a, a proper definition of good to go beat up small children. Unless we have a universal standard to which we can appeal, prove me wrong. You can't. There needs to be a universal standard. Um, again, final illustration on this. As I was thinking about this idea of a universal standard, it suddenly dawned on me. You're a contractor. You build things. Do we let everybody define what a foot, inch, yard is for their own? Yeah. Well, I think a foot's this. Do I think a foot's a... Somewhere in the United States, at the Bureau of Weights and Measures, there's a thing that says this is a foot. And this is an inch. And an inch is 2.54 centimeters. We don't get to define what an inch is for... We don't get to... Well, you know, I'm not into weights and measures, but I'm spiritual. I know what an inch is. No, no. This is... I'm sorry if you're listening at home. This is an inch. It's 2.54 centimeters. Period. End of discussion. This is what a minute is. This is what an hour is. There are standards. And from that standard, everything else... And then we come to our lives. And we say, oh, there are no standards. There is no God. And now what I'm doing is prefacing St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Because Paul is going to jump right into ethics and morality in chapter 1. If you've done some reading ahead, you know what's coming. Uh, and it's pretty hot. And it's pretty heavy. But he grounds it in a theology. What Paul is saying is the reason why all these horrible things are going on is because you've forgotten God. You pulled yourself away from God. And now, even worse, because remember, he's speaking to a world that has adopted pagan practices. He's saying, you've invented your own gods. <clears throat> Paul could be speaking to us today. He could be speaking to this world today. We've removed God from public discourse, and then we wonder why morality is crumbling around us and why there are so many different views of the same issue. Supposed Christians having battles about basic issues. Well, when we've taken God out of the question, what's the standard any longer? And this is exactly what Paul is arguing in Romans. There's a reason why we need to read the Bible. There's a reason why we need to read Paul. There's a reason why we need to read Chrysostom. Um, I'm going to, I'll share some, some Chrysostom quotes as we get through the text throughout Romans. Because, because I spent $2.99, I have the entire commentary to the Romans. I could read Chrysostom all day. I could read St. John all day long. Um, you know, and I've, again, we've done some of this in the past. One of the things I love about Chrysostom, no matter what the topic is, he's going to get to riches and the poor. Chrysostom, and for those of you listening at home, I used to run a soup kitchen, so it's kind of an issue for me. Um, I mean, Chrysostom was fanatic about taking care of the poor. And inevitably, whenever it comes to these kind of issues, you've forgotten God and you're obsessed with riches. All you do is stare at the wealthy and you lust after wealth and that's why you've forgotten blah, blah, blah. And, he, and, then, and he's off on one of his wonderful tangents and he could, be, he could be speaking to us today. Our obsession with celebrity is, is, is astounding to me. Our, I want to end this whole little intro. Let's bring it back to Prince Harry and, and Princess, whatever they call them, Duchess. I, again, we fought a revolution, so we don't have to care about these things. Um, our obsession with these, because they're celebrities. They have no bearing on our lives. 
We're voyeurs looking at a zoo, entertaining ourselves, and we get obsessed with the cult of celebrity. We get obsessed with the cult of wealth. And Chrysostom would say to us, that has become your God. And you wonder why our morals are crumbling around us. We've invented new gods for ourselves, And this is exactly what Paul is saying in Romans. So that's your introduction. Are we ready to get into the text? Where's Angela, by the way? Is she okay? Yeah, she's on vacation this week, and she apologized for not well, <laughs> You let her go on vacation. You are such a good boss. Okay. Tell her she was missed. All right. All right. She talked to her, so I'm out for it. So without further ado, that, that's my 14-minute uh, introduction. Uh, now it's time to do, for those of you who are listening, our approach here at St. Mary's Bible Study is, I don't really care what you think. Uh, what does the text say? We're not here to discuss what we think or feel. It's what does the text say? What does Paul say? Uh, and we try to pull that out and make sense of it in a modern world. So as Paul typically does, he starts with an introduction of introducing himself. He goes on a little bit longer in his introduction to the Romans. He goes on for about six verses that we're going to look at right now. And without even looking at them, unless you've read ahead, why do you think he's going on such a lengthy, much lengthier than in any of his other letters? He's never been, exactly, Deborah. he's never been to Rome. He, had, he lived in Corinth for two, three years. They knew him. I mean, he had, remember the Corinthians had that special place in his heart, which is why all the craziness going on in Corinth was so painful to him. He had lived in Philippi. He had lived in Galatia. He's never been to Rome. And this is not the modern world. There are no Zoom. There are no TV shows. All they know in Rome at this point is his reputation. So he does go on a little bit longer. So Lisa, if I can ask you, a good, nice, loud voice so the, uh, the microphone will pick you up, verses 1 through 6. Paul, a servant of, Jesus, I'm sorry, of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. All right. We're not going to say a lot about this, but a couple of points we do want to make. Um, great message for everybody involved in church work. How does Paul identify himself? Bond servant. A bondservant. Padre Lee, do you have the Greek text with you? Yeah. What's the word that he uses? Does he say dulos? Dulos. Kediakonos. Dulos kediakonos. It means slave. It's a household servant. It doesn't mean like a humble dude. He's actually saying, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm a servant and a slave and a, and a, and a deacon of Jesus Christ. Um, church service is supposed to be based on, on humility and, and servitude. Of Jesus Christ, he always grounds everything he does in his call. And again, we talked about that when we did the Acts of the Apostles, so I don't want to beat a dead horse. He was called to be, apostle, to be an apostle, set apart for... We talked at length in the Acts of the Apostles about the gospel. The gospel features heavily in Romans. And remember, the gospel is that kerygma, that, that, that message of the early church. 
And Paul is saying he's been set apart for that. Even before we look at what Paul will say in Romans, think back to our study in Acts last fall. How would you sum up the gospel? What is the gospel? What's the message? What's the message of the early church? Give me any point. The word of God. The word of God. Love. It is the message of love expressed in Jesus Christ, who has been crucified for us and risen from the dead. That, that kind of sums up the message of the early church. And quite honestly, that should sum up the message of the contemporary church. When we, when we preach anything but that, we're, we're missing the gospel. Okay, now let's get to this part. Set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Who is verse 2 addressed to? Absolutely. Do you think the Greeks in Rome or the Latins in Rome have any interest in the prophets who foretold the coming of the Messiah? Couldn't care less. So anytime Paul speaks of foretold by the, he's speaking to his Jewish audience. Verse three, the gospel concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh. Again, do the Greeks care about David? The Greeks don't even know who David is. So once again, we've got this two groups in the early church. There is, there is still very much a Jewish identity. And now there's this growing Gentile identity. And Paul has been the one who took, and I'm not going to repeat, you know, 12 weeks of the Acts of the Apostles studies. Paul was the genius who took what was largely a Jewish, a Jewish message and transformed it into a message for Gentile Greeks. But there is still a, a very, at this point, when Roman, you know, these, these epistles predate the Gospels by 15, 20 years. Mark's Gospel, which is roughly 65 AD, Mark's Gospel doesn't show up for the 20 years. Uh, so, so Paul is writing very early where there is still a very Jewish identity to the church. So that's where he has to get into this. Unless you mention David, no Jew is going to have any faith in your Messiah anyway. David was always the Messianic king. To sit, oh, these verses are just so powerful. Verse 3. The gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and designated son of God, in power according to the spirit of holiness. The two measures press. Ah, Pandali. Ugh, if you weren't on the other side of the table, I'd kiss you. <laughs> in two verses, St. Paul has just summed up the two natures of Christ, the human and the divine. We are 400 years away from the Fourth Ecumenical Council at Chalcedon in 451, which finally defined once and for all the two natures of Christ, without confusion, without mixture, without, it, it's, it's a thing Father reads every year on the Sunday of Orthodoxy. You know, we still read that, that definition of Chalcedon, defining the two per, we get into trouble Christologically when you emphasize one or the other. You look at every heresy through church history and it's either emphasizing the humanness of Jesus to the detriment of his divinity or emphasizing the divinity of Jesus to the detriment of his humanity. And the same today. The same today. Here we are on the, by the way, since it's sundown, we're already into tomorrow, which is January 18th, which is the feast day of St. Athanasios. 
And it was St. Athanasios whose classic book on the Incarnation really should be, I think it's on your bookshelf here, really should be read by every person who is a believer in Jesus Christ. St. Athanasius speaking about the humanity of Christ, that which he did not assume, he did not heal. If Jesus is not fully human, how are we saved? I, I, these are things you need to think about when we talk about the theology of what we believe. If Jesus is only partially human, then we're only partially saved. He has to be fully human. Secondly, he has to be fully divine or he can't save us because only God can save. And this is what the church wrestles through for the next 400 years. Whether it's Arianism, Nestorianism, uh, Docetism, all of these various heresies that the church confronted for 400 years until we get to Chalcedon in 451, one of the other is being overemphasized and the other one's being uh, denied. He is fully human and fully God. And St. Paul does this in two verses in roughly 50 AD. I mean, it's, it's just incredible to me what he is able to do. Listen again. Descended from David according to the flesh and designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. And what's, what's the sign of that? By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among... Now who is his audience? Everybody. We're the lawyers in the room. Come on, we got more than a couple of lawyers in the room. Paul is amazing the way he... How do you, how do you argue with him? And it's not like he's saying, by the way, I got the message for the Gentiles too. He just, the way he just works this stuff in. I've been studying Paul for 40 years and I still am astounded by his intellect and by his ability in, in three or four verses to sum up perfectly our belief about Jesus Christ. He's fully God and fully human. Again, if you have an Athanasios in your family, tomorrow, St. Anthony today, by the way, uh, happy name day to, to your Anthony's and Athanasios's. That which he did not assume, he did not heal. He has to be fully man or we are not saved. He has to be fully God or he cannot save. And it's Athanasios who, who talks about that. Side note, because Athanasios also is, is one of those whose brains just goes um, In the book on the Incarnation, uh, when he talks about the Jew and the Gentile, he said that's why it was perfectly fitting that he died a death on the cross. And listen, by the way, when he wrote this, he was a 19-year-old subdeacon in Alexandria. He said, for it is only on the cross that a man dies with his arms outstretched. So that way with one hand he could call his ancient Jewish people and with his other he could call his new Gentiles. I, 19 years old. It's just not fair that he was that smart. So that was St. Athanasius. So again, Paul is setting the table for what the church is going to be elaborating for the next 400 years, really wrestling with this idea of who is Jesus Christ. So when we talk about the gospel here, and, and by the way, we're only six verses in into a 16-chapter book, um, we've identified the person of Jesus as fully human and fully divine. Second of all, this gospel is for the Jewish people, and the Gentile people, i.e. it's for everyone. All right, so far so good? All right, to all of God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, 
Who are the saints of the church? You are. Or let me rephrase that with some of you who are supposed to be the saints. No, I'm again. I'm again. <laughs> we, are the, we are the saints in the church. The saints are just not pretty people we put up on icons on the walls of Orthodox churches. I think this is the problem sometimes with Orthodoxy is that's what we think sainthood is. And we think, you know, saints stopped in, you know, whatever, the 13th century or the 12th century. We are called, to, we are the saints. The church is a community of saintly sinners and sinful saints. We are called to be holy. Agi is the Greek word, agios. We are called to be not of this world. Agios, saint, literally means not of the earth. Ah, the negation, ye, not of the earth. We're of another world, of another kingdom. All right, let's do uh, verses seven following. Let's get a reader. Anybody on my left? Somebody like, say, Deborah. Okay. If you, if you want to volunteer, of course. <laughs> to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests if, by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, may I, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Okay, let's stop there for a minute. We already identified, I think, Deborah, you said it best. Uh, and this is an important point. Paul hasn't been to Rome yet. So these, when I say his people, you know, I'm not being, you know, you know funny flip cavalier. These are my people. Um, he, he's had nothing to do with this community. But he is praising their faith. Uh, you know, we don't know a lot of what was going on in Rome, but you can only imagine. You know, remember, Rome is the, cent the center of the world. Rome is the seat of government. Rome is the seat of persecution. So the Christians who lived in Rome, they had to have some pretty powerful, pretty powerful beliefs. So Paul is praising that. I love this little exchange in verse 11 and 12. He starts in verse 11. <clears throat> why is he coming to Rome? Or why, let me rephrase that. Why does he want? Because at this point, and by the way, those of you who attended Acts of the Apostles, uh, here's your final exam. How was it that Paul got to Rome finally? In the final analysis. He was captured. He was captured. And in the middle of his trial in Palestine, he said, I appeal to Caesar. I'm a Roman citizen. And everybody went, oh, God, we forgot. And he said not to kill him. We can't kill him now. He's, he's appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. And they sent him to Rome, where he lived in house arrest for three years, teaching and preaching. So Paul eventually did get to Rome under house arrest. And the rest of the saints, they were prophesying wherever he was going. Absolutely. Was going there, you know. Absolutely correct. It's going to end there. So he, this, is, these are, this is not his community. He didn't found it. He didn't preach there. Um, he's just writing. What is it he wants to do when he gets there? Why, is he, why does he want to come so badly? The first spiritual gift. There we go. Yeah, don't be too profound. Just read the text. Verse 11. I want to give you a spiritual gift. I want to, I want to share what I know. And, and, and then it's almost like, and I could be reading too much into this, but like I said, I've been studying Paul for 40 years. For those of you listening home, I'm 106 years old. Um, <laughs> for those of you listening at home, I apologize for my sense of humor. You'll get used to it. It's almost like he says, that may have come off as a little arrogant. 
I need to back off a little. I want to come to you so I can impart some spiritual gift. And then, he, or, or if this is just Paul being humble, he immediately turns back. What does he say in verse 12? I want to be encouraged by you. Not only do I want to give you a spiritual gift, but you're going to give me a spiritual gift. By the way, even if he was insincere, good move. This is a great way to build bridges. He's not saying I'm coming in here like thunder and I'm going to teach you everything you need to know. Um, I'm not going to mention any names. One of your colleagues, when I was still in San Diego, was assigned to a parish that the, the Antiochian church had had some ups and downs. And this guy had been in like, you know, four parishes. He's a classmate of mine in seminary. He'd been in you know, four parishes in three years. He said, I'm going to whip these people into shape. I said, I said, look, dude, you've been in four parishes in three years. Maybe you better back off a little bit before you come in here like thunder and lightning. Um, Paul's not coming in like thunder and lightning. I want to impart some spiritual, but I want to be mutually encouraged by you. So he's saying to the Romans, we're, we're going to learn from each other. Great move. Um, keep going, Deborah. Verse 13. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, that just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as it is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. All right. And this, I, I love verse 14, Pandali, you and I, Irini, you know, you and the three of us, we can, I'm sorry to share this with especially those of you from the Middle East, but to the ancient Greeks, you were either Greek or a barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's just that. that I what that meant. Yeah. Um, still the case. It, it, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I cannot tell you how many times I, I have shared with people, not like, do you remember, but I actually believe it, that line from my big fat Greek wedding where he says, ah, you know, when your ancestors were swinging from trees, mine were still, mine were writing philosophy. You know, so, so but to the ancient Greek, you were either Greek or you were a barbarian. And, and that, that, that word comes from what they would hear, the language, vadavaros, Absolutely correct. <laughs> You're exactly correct. So a little bit of, you know, the ancient Greek way. So, But Paul is saying, leave all the, that kind of silliness aside, Greek and barbarian. So who does that involve? Pretty much everyone in the world, right? Here's the universality of the message again. Before he talked about Jew and Gentile, now he talks about Greek and barbarian. You see how, here's, our, here's our, our, our slick lawyers slipping in the universality of the message. It's for everyone, people. It's just not for the Jewish people. It's just not for the Greeks. Because the Greeks were as, could be as bad as the Jewish people. You know, we're, we're, we're the Greeks. We should have the message. And Paul is saying it's for everyone. Greek and barbarian, foolish and wise. That's why I want to come to Rome. Because all of you are in Rome. Rome is the center of the world. If you want to reach the whole world, you'll want, you need to get to Rome. So far, so good? Okay, we're going to have, set the table for the next couple verses. We're going to revisit the issue of the gospel as the message, the kerygma, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Savior. It is the power of God revealed through the resurrection and ascension to the Gentile mind, not so much to the Jewish, well, to the Jewish mind. How did the Jewish mind look at the crucifixion, the crucifixion of Jesus? That's utter scandal. Utter scandal. Remember the Jewish expectation of a Messiah, they were waiting for the military leader to lead them to victory. So any 
any Jewish person sitting on the fence watching the events of Holy Friday, oh, God bless you, Steve. Any Jewish person on the fence watching the events of Holy Friday would say, well, he failed. To the, to the Greek, just the idea that Jesus came in human flesh is kind of a scandal. So to both Jew and Gentile, who's the target audience for Paul's message, the very existence of Jesus is something that they should be ashamed of. If you're Jewish, you're ashamed that he died. If you're Greek, you're ashamed that he took flesh in the first place. Because if Plato taught us anything, the whole point of spirituality is to free us from the body. Because the only thing that counts is the soul. Boy, does that sound like modern man, right? Especially, by the way, when we come to church. That's why we need to get rid of the pews. Because as Father Alexander Schmemann said, you can either have the liturgy or the pews, but you can't have both because one is a denial of the other. We live in the world as if we're bodies that don't have a soul, and then we come to church and we live like souls that don't have a body. Our, our, our liturgy is by definition physical. We cross, we bow, we kiss, we receive communion. We, you know, there's, there's this movement because our bodies are involved. So unlike Plato and the ancient Greeks, the Christian says, no, no, no. The body and the soul are together. There's none of this. We don't need the body. It's the soul that counts. No, no, body and soul together. So all of this to set the table for verse 16, because Paul uses a pretty powerful word here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why would Paul say that unless what? There are people in Rome who are ashamed of the gospel. Because to both Jew and Greek alike, it is, it's shameful. The Jew is shamed that he died. The Greek is shamed that he took flesh in the first place. And so Paul gets, he's going to get in front of this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. He has no shame at all in this. In fact, it is his glory. Deborah, if I can ask you to go from 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. All right. This, these two verses are so packed for subsequent church history. And I would say the misunderstanding of Martin Luther of church history. So we're going to spend a little time on these. First of all, we dealt with the issue of shame. Fine, we beat that one in the ground. He's not ashamed of the gospel. Now tell me what the gospel is based on what Paul, don't tell me what you think. Tell me what verse 16 says. What is the gospel? Just read it. It is the power of God for what? Salvation. For salvation. Everyone. For everyone who, believes. who has faith, who believes. And now Paul, very smart. The Jew first, you know, they, they, they've, got right of, they've got right of first refusal. They've got their, what is that, an Elise? Is that if, you know, you, 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 you know, they go first dibs, the Jew first and then the Greek. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone. I mean, there are three or four critical points in there about the gospel. Power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. Now let's talk a little bit about faith. We get to verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. 1,500 years later, 
an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther will react violently. And I say this respectfully to those of you, those of you listening at home who come from the Roman Catholic Church, but with all due respect, in the 15th and 16th centuries, there were some terrible abuses in the Roman Catholic Church regarding um, works. In particular, the granting of, of indulgences, which was indulgences were, uh, and I'm trying not to be flip or cavalier about this, but it's sort of like a get out of jail free card. Um, it got you out of so many days of, of uh, penance and purgatory, which is, is a Roman Catholic concept anyway. Purgatory is not a biblical concept. It certainly is not part of the Orthodox tradition, nor is it, that matter, for that matter, part of the Protestant tradition. Um, in particular, and again, forgive me, but these are historical realities we must accept. The Roman practice was to grant what was called a plenary indulgence, which completely got you out of purgatory, and you got those basically for two things. That's how they built St. Peter's Basilica, for donating money, or more importantly, going on one of the Crusades. If you went on a crusade to the Holy Lands, you were granted a plenary indulgence. So it's easy for us, especially those of us of the Eastern Orthodox Church, to look at Martin Luther and go, well, you bad guy, you just you know launched the whole Protestant reform. Well, the truth of the matter is a lot of the stuff Martin Luther was talking about needed to be talked about. But what Luther did, and remember now, he was an Augustinian monk. From the, he was from the Order of St. Augustine. So he was very much in this world of works and indulgences and plenary indulgences and purgatory. And he just rejected it. He completely rejected it. And he tacks his 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg door and the Protestant Reformation is launched. And what Lu, when I say he, he rejected works and, and Luther's the one who says, he, it's, you're saved by faith, you're not saved by works. Well, here's where Luther got a little off. The Roman Catholic Church never said you were saved by works. And I'm not here to defend Roman Catholicism. I, I spoke pretty bluntly about their issue of indulgences and purgatory and that stuff. My point is we in the Eastern Orthodox have never had this battle between faith and works. They're one and the same. Luther would say, you're saved by faith. And, and you know, he was you know, sort of loudly proclaiming this. And we in the Orthodox Church are going, yeah, what's your point? Well, you're saved by faith, not by works. Yeah, we know. Why, why are you yelling at us? I, I mean, these were kind of theological discussions going on in the 15th and 16th centuries. We need to understand that we are saved by faith. You're not saved by works. You're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. You are saved when you give your life to Jesus Christ and accept his forgiveness. That manifests itself in what? Works. How many times, and I'm so glad we did Acts and then Romans, how many times in the Acts of the Apostles, brethren, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Jesus Christ, you and your whole household. And what was the next step? Always, every single time. Who just said that? Al, yeah. get baptized. Well, here's Philip and, and, and the uh, Ethiopian uh, eunuch. Well, here's water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? The, Philippi, uh, the Philippian jailer. Here's water. Let's get baptized. And his whole house was baptized at that hour. The belief... You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, and it is instantly connected to some physical act. Secondly, when we talk about works, works of mercy, I'm sorry, you cannot call yourself a Christian and not be doing charitable works. You're not going to be saved by them. I'm not saved because I'm, I'm not going to be saved because I ran a soup kitchen and fed homeless people. But I mean, if, if you are a Christian, it's part and parcel of the gospel to take care of the poor, the forgotten, the lonely, the sick, the widows, the orphans. 
people who are dying, people who, who have no one to love them. That's what we do. That's what we have done for 2000. You cannot, uh, James in his epistle says, faith without works is dead faith. So it's an expression of our faith. Yeah. Now, Martin Luther, and this, you know, he got a little full of himself towards the end of his life. And again, I apologize to those of you who are listening who may be Lutheran, but these are historical facts you must accept. Martin Luther towards the end of his life said James should be taken out of the Bible. He called it a straw epistle. Because it should just be removed because it didn't fit his theology of faith. None of this work business. James is the one who says faith without works is dead faith. Even you believe, and this is I'm quoting the epistle of James. Do you believe? Good for you. So do the demons. The demons believe. They just don't act on it. So we of the Eastern Orthodox, and I can only speak for us, I cannot speak for Protestantism, I can't speak for the Reformation tradition, I can't speak for Roman Catholicism, and nor do I intend to. We of the East have never had this issue with faith versus works. They are for us one and the same. No one would ever save, say we are saved by doing works of mercy. No one would say that. No one would say we are saved by our baptisms. <clears throat> There's not one priest in the world who would say that. You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Period. End of story. That faith manifests itself in a life of works. So there's, there's no uh, conflict at all. Uh, they're one and the same for us. So this whole business of, let's go back to verse 17 now. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. The, these are the verses that Luther took and just went off. And in my mind, he... Kind of missed the point a little bit. All right, so so far so good on faith and works. All right, uh, Deborah, you're doing a great job. Keep going, verse 18. Now, now we're going to get to kind of the rough stuff. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but because but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness. All right, before we get to the uncleanliness, because this is a fun little list. Yeah. Let's go back to the way that I introduced it. And again, these weren't my thoughts. I'm just kind of summing up and paraphrasing Paul. In verse 22 and 23, Paul is going to ground the immorality of the world, in particular Rome, in faulty theology, and how has that the that faulty theology manifested itself? Idol worship. Idol worship. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, or birds, or animals, or reptiles. I, I've said this to you when we've talked about uh, idolatry in the past. I, I understand, ladies and gentlemen, to us of the modern world who are educated people, we've been to college, we, you know, we have lawyers, engineers, nurses, doctors, dentists in this room, contractors. It, it sounds absolutely ridiculous and silly, but to the ancient world, these wood carvings of a bird or a, you know, whatever the, the thing was, 
It didn't represent the God. It was the God. When Moses made the golden calf, think Charlton Heston and Ewell Brenner and Edward G. Robinson at this point. That was their God. Aaron. Charlton Heston. Um, that, you know, in fact, one of the things I've always liked about Cecil B. DeMille's movie is Edward G. Robinson says to the Jewish people, there's your God. And he's pointing to the gold. He, he's right. That was what idolatry is. So once we stopped worshiping God, once we created faulty theology, what was going to be the inevitable result? Immorality. And if you remember anything about our whole study of Romans... If you remember anything about tonight, remember this point. Theology leads to morality. Faulty theology leads to immorality. Once we remove the universal standard for God, once we remove the universal standard for, for divinity, for goodness, for love, because see, for us, all of those things ultimately are grounded in God. What is love? Well, for us, it's grounded in a Trinitarian being who becomes, who loves us so much he becomes one of us and dies on the cross for us. Take that away. Well, I think love is for me to beat up John Phillips. Prove me wrong. I defy any of you to prove me wrong unless we have some universal standard, unless a foot is a foot is a foot. If we, all, if we can all make up our own definitions about what a foot is, I don't want to live in a house that you're building. And everything else is irrelevant. And if we can all make up our definitions of what God is, how are we supposed to have any common conversation about what love is? So, so theology leads to morality. So Paul, in verses 22 and 23, has clearly defined what, where, where man got off track, got off the reservation. And by the way, it just wasn't the Greeks who were doing this idolatry in the Egyptians and the Babylonians. It was the Jewish people too. Throughout their history, they fell into idolatry. We talked about Aaron making the golden calf. There are there parts... Uh, of Jewish history where they, they put idols in the temple. The desolating sacrilege, you know, that, that Daniel talks about and that, that you see in the book of Revelation. All right, so this is where modern man misses it. We don't want to talk about theology anymore because if we needed any more, well, if we wanted any more importance and relevance for St. Paul's letter to the Romans, I think quite honestly we're ashamed of, of our theology. So we don't talk about it. And so we, we, we have fallen into this, I could be spiritual but not religious, which is utter poppycock. It's impossible. It's, 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 it's just impossible. It doesn't exist. So once man got rid of God and started creating all these idolatrous beings, here we go. Take us off, Deborah. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also, likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. All right. There's a reason why Paul puts this first on his list, and so let's get this out right now. 
that, that homosexuality was rampant in ancient Greece and, quite honestly, in Rome, too. Uh, in ancient Greece, it was kind of expected that a, a wealthy, respected man, who would have his wife, of course, because you, you got to have some kids, and that's all women are good for. Um, I'm not saying that the ancient Greeks would so easy, ladies. Um, <laughs> but but th these wealthy, respected men would be expected to go down to the gymnasium and make an utter fool of himself falling in love with a young boy. There may have not have been anything sexual going on, but there's so there's there's kind of weirdness happening all over the place. This is what Paul is addressing. Now, the contemporary world wants to take this first and, and just start hammering and beating up on homosexuality. What's interesting is we pick and choose what we want to beat up on. Because, yeah, Paul's pretty tough. And he's talking that, that, he, that the, there's this unnaturalness about this whole thing. Women are with women and men are with men instead of men being with women. And we can debate that. But what's interesting is nobody wants to talk about what follows. And let's never forget a sin is a sin is a sin. There are no degrees of sin. We, again, forgive me those of you who come from the Roman background. We don't have cardinal and venal sins. When you miss the mark, which is what the Greek word amartia, sin, literally means, you've missed the mark. Uh, it doesn't mean something you've done. In some cases, a sin may be something you haven't done and should have done. A sin just means we are aiming at a target and you missed the mark. That word for sin in Greek, amartia, the most common word for sin, comes from the language of archery. When you're shooting at a target and you miss the mark which is an interesting, way to, to, an interesting way to look at sin. Now let's look at the list that Paul adds that nobody seems to want to talk about because we're so excited to beat up on homosexuality. Let's see who else is on the list. And by the way, I got a sneaky suspicion every single person around this table is guilty of one of these. Personally, I'm about five or six of them on my list. Deborah, go ahead. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah. Backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, Good enough there. That's a great list. I think there's a law firm in Boca Raton that, that is good. Good morning. Gossip, slander, hater, insolent, boastful, invulnerable, evil, disobedient parents, foolish, faithful. Can we help you? So let's look at this list for a minute. What, you know, again, we get so obsessed with these first couple verses of sexual morality because that's more fun. It's more fun to talk about adultery. It's more fun to talk about homosexuality. Okay. All manner of wickedness, evil, covetousness. What's our obsession with celebrity all about? We want it. Remember Robin Leach? Lifestyles of the rich and famous. Champagne dream. We, we would watch these ridiculous episodes about these huge men. Because deep down we want it. Covetousness. Keeps going on. Malice. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity. Your translation, Deborah, said whisperers. I like mine better. <laughs> Gossips. We just wiped out half of the, uh, the churches during coffee hour at this point. <laughs> Slanderers. Haters of God. Insolent. Haughty. Boastful. 
inventors of evil. This is a phrase Paul has used a few times. It comes up in a number of things. It's not enough that we have evil, we invent new ways of evil. Um, I'm, I'm, we're going to circle back when I get through the rest of this, this wonderful list. Um, inventors of evil. I, this one kind of blows me away in the midst of these things about you know murder and hatred. Disobedient to your parents. You know, it's in there. Foolish, faithful, heartless, ruthless. Inventors of evil. Um, I'd like to say I don't know where we in the modern world got so far off track, but I know where. Once we stopped believing in God, once we started inventing our own God, then we started inventing new evils. It's, it's fascinating me. Um, I, I, I'm obsessed, and I don't watch the movies, but I'm obsessed with the Lifetime Network. And I hope none of you work for the Lifetime Network or write movies for the Lifetime Network. Every one of those movies is, you know, the killer nanny, the killer babysitter, the killer grandmother. You know, my, my new wife is a psychopathic serial killer. And, and these are all movies that have been made in the last couple of years. And, and I just kind of ask myself, who, who, who Not only who would watch them, but who would make them? Why, with all of the murder and all of the horrible things going on in our world, why would people make these movies? Why are we glorifying this, and why are we planting seeds? I, uh, if you're listening at home, I run the foundation for the Palm Beach County School District. We live in a world where we're terrified of the next school shooting. We now, all of our ID badges now have a panic button on it. I don't know if you're aware of that in Palm Beach County. Every teacher, our ID, we have a, a panic button. That if we see a gun, you, you hit the button, and it automatically locks every door, sends a 911 to the police, and the SWAT team arrives wow. in our schools. Mm. In our schools. Immorality comes will not will not replace morality and all these, you know, codes and laws and all these things. Morality. Because the church is being pushed put aside. Marginalized. And they're coming here, they're coming to fit into the place, the movies and whatever. You know. It's good that we have we are hearing it, but we're going back to acts, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, but, true. but faith without acts somewhere in the Bible is it's not worth it, it's not faith. What makes faith really is cementing is what you do, yeah. you know, acts. No, it's James' epistle. Faith without works is dead. Yeah, you're exactly yeah, correct. And you're correct. The, the simple fact is the church has been marginalized. Again, forgive me. We're all people of the church here. We have a priest sitting to my left. The church has been marginalized because we allowed ourselves to be marginalized. Because we stop, in the ancient world, there was an expression, the church was the leaven of society. You put a little bit of yeast in the, and it blows up. The ancient church did that. The ancient church was the one whispering in the ear of the emperor. We stopped. We, the church is marginalized because we allowed ourselves to be marginalized. Because, first of all, we preached a message that is irrelevant. We stopped preaching the gospel. We started preaching everything else but the gospel. So we marginalized ourselves. If the church wants to be the leaven, if the church wants to make a difference in this world, it ain't rocket science. It's sitting right here in front of you. Just do what they did in the Acts of the Apostles. Do what they do what St. Paul is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. From that truth, he who is fully human and fully divine, he who was crucified and risen, from that truth comes all morality and ethical systems. When the church gets back to that message, we'll no longer be irrelevant. And we will no longer be marginalized. All right, let's go ahead and finish it off. Uh, Deborah, go ahead and just read that last couple of verses. And knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, 
Not only do the same, but also approve of those who prophesy. And again, this is an important verse, verse 22. Or, yeah, 22, excuse me. 32. 32, yeah, my eyes are getting late. Uh, Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, they approve. They not only are watching these things happen, we are approving it. Doing nothing is admitting. Well, you know, the Roman church, and I do like this, where they call it sins of commission and sins of omission. Uh, I've always liked that 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 mm-hmm. inclusion when we talk about the spiritual journey. Uh, it's you know missing the mark. Sometimes we we are approving of these things. We're watching our we're watching our community crumble around us, and and it's not because we don't have anything to say. We just don't know what to say anymore. Because to bring it back to what I think Paul is addressing, I think deep down we are ashamed of the gospel. I think there is a little bit of insecurity and shame in us that we don't want to stand up and say, no. One thing I like about Luther, here stand I. You know, that's how he began his, here, here, everybody knew where Luther stood. There was no, I may not agree with some of his conclusions. I may not agree with his methodology in rejecting any kind of works or any kind of spiritual work. But I love the fact, here stand I. You will know where I stand. You will know what I believe. Here stand. He taxes his 95 theses on the on the, the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. When's the last time we stood up and said, here stand I? When's the last time, and I can always, again, I know we have Roman Catholics, we have Protestants, people all over listening. When's the last time we in the Orthodox Church stood up and said something about anything? And again, I'm, this is why, if you're going to live stream me, you... You better make sure, like, you're off camera because you'll, you'll get you'll get defrocked. Uh, um, I mean, you know, we come out with these ridiculously vague. Pro- we in the Orthodox, we're opposed to poverty. Wow, well, that's so deep. Holy cow! Yeah, really. I mean, seriously, this is the best you could come up with. We go to these clergy leaders. We're opposed to hatred and bullying of every kind. Whoa, is that revolutionary? When's the last time we took a stand? When's the last time we came out and said, no, no, this is not acceptable? And I'm not just talking about ethical behavior. I'm talking about theological crumbling. We are, are, we're crumbling around us and we're saying nothing because we have nothing to say. And, and coming up with some great program ain't the answer. The answer is sitting right here in front of us. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fully human, fully divine, that which he did not assume, he cannot heal. If he's not fully God, he cannot heal us. And that divine human being loved us so much, he died on the cross, was resurrected three days later, and ascended into heaven, taking his body and his soul to sit at the right hand of the Father. And it is our job to bring that message of forgiveness to the world. And until we do that, we need to keep having Bible study and reading Romans. So, that's the introduction, folks. A, everybody take a deep breath. Um, hopefully, I'm not going to scare anyone off. Hopefully, you'll come back uh, next Tuesday. Uh, a couple of businessy things to go over. It's, it's, eight, it's quarter to eight, and I don't want to start a new chapter this late.